Well, how many know there's a direct link or connection between how we relate to God and how we relate to people? In fact, how we relate to God should affect how we relate to people. I found when you're vulnerable with God, it prompts you then to be vulnerable with other people. In fact, that's how God's designed it. When you're real with God, you can be real with yourself. You can confront the things that you need to confront, which then opens you up to the people in your life. And, and when you found, you know, even that zone of security in your relationship with God, it means that you then don't have to put a demand on people to get what you only can get from God. In fact, last week, you know, the title of my message is, I'm not God and neither are you. And, and when we don't have a connection with God, what we tend to do is we tend to put God-type pressure on human relationships. But one thing we've established in the series already is there's some things that only God can satisfy. There's, a, there's some things only God can fulfill in our lives. And, and when we come to God, He comes and fills those spaces where we don't then put pressure on our partners, on our relationships to do what only God can do. See, the richness you have in your relationship with God will, will automatically spill out over into the relationships in your world. That's why I reckon coming to church is a good thing. You know, so many people go, oh, we just need family time. We need, you know, a couple time. We need that. We work on our relationship. We, we can't afford to come to church. But coming to church, how many know it's going to strengthen your marriage? It's going to strengthen your relationships. Every man who's not registered for stronger. You may be strong right now, but you can be stronger. And, uh, you know, the best way to get stronger is to get in an environment where God's ministering, where God's speaking. And in fact, you know, I want to encourage the wives out there to send your man along to stronger because they'll come back a better husband. They'll come back a better father. And, you know, your connection, ultimately, your connection with God will help you in your home life. And, uh, you know, it's when we're open to God, it's then we, we, we are open to other people. And our, our deeper, the deeper our trust in God, the deeper our relationships with one another. Because after all, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that it talks about how we're being reconciled to God. That's good news. Oh, come on, that's really good news. We're being reconciled to God, but, but then because we're being reconciled to God, it, it, it talks about how God calls us to reconcile with one another. And that as believers, if you believe in Jesus, you, you now have the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, you have a ministry to bring things together. Now, for us to really live in that, we've got to understand, and you know, I established a little bit last week, the, the difference between consumer relationships and covenant relationships. See, we may not know it, but we desire covenant, but we settle for consumer. Uh, many people hear that word covenant, and they think it's an old-fashioned term. Covenant, you know, do you have a better, up-to-date word? I go, no, I don't. Because uh, covenant's not just a word, it's, it's a category of thought. And, and there's no other word that can co convey this category of thought. Uh, see, covenant creates relationships. And a covenant relationship is far more loving and intimate than a legal relationship. But it's also far more binding and enduring than an emotional relationship. 
See, a covenant is more intimate and loving because it's legal. Some of you are going, what? Well, let me make my case. You know, a consumer relationship, as we talked about last week, you know, in a consumer relationship, it's just like, you know, you go to the shop, you relate to the vendor on the basis of what they give you. You know, on the basis of whether you get the product at a good price. But, but how many know you're always looking for a cheaper deal? Or, or you're looking for an upgrade on the product? And you say to the, the vendor, you say, we have a relationship, but you better keep adjusting to me in this relationship, otherwise I'm out of here. Because my needs are more important than the relationship. And if I can get my needs met better somewhere else, that's where I'm going to go. But, but a covenant relationship says that the exact opposite. See, see, a consumer relationship says, you adjust to me, otherwise I'm out of here. But a covenant relationship says, I'll adjust to you because I've made a promise. And the relationship is more important than my needs. In fact, what it's saying is my needs are less important than the sustenance of this relationship. See, see if two people are in a relationship and one's a consumer and the other's a covenant, I'll get that out, it'll be bad because the person who believes in covenants will be exploited. See, see, if you get into a relationship without covenant, it's exploitative because because, because, you know, one is wanting you to adjust to them all the time. And they're, they're, there's, they're, there's, no, there's no compromise. But if you both say, hey, we're done with consumer relationships and we want covenant relationship, boom, three things take place. And quickly, I just want to unpack three things that take place. Number one, you have a zone of security where you can be yourself. You have a zone of security where you can be yourself. See, in a consumer relationship, you're always marketing. You're always selling yourself. You have to perform to meet the other person's need or otherwise they're out of here. In a covenant relationship or in a marriage, you finally find a zone of safety where you can be yourself and where you can get rid of the facades, where you can reveal your insecurities and you can stop spinning and you can stop marketing. See, sex outside of marriage, you know, sex is a covenant good, not a consumer good. And sex outside of marriage is simply marketing. Now just saying, where there's not a freedom because there's not a commitment and there's not a promise made. And so that's why God designed it in marriage so that there's a zone of security where you can be yourself. The second thing that happens in a covenant relationship is when you commit to the relationship in spite of your feelings, deeper feelings grow. Uh, another covenant relationship is parenting. How I many know in parenting you give for a long time? You adjust to them in a lot of ways, and you get very little back. You know how I many know kids just expect food to be in the fridge. Uh, they, don't, they don't look into the fridge and go, "Oh, thank you for filling the fridge." In fact, they complain when food is not there. But how many know the, the more investment, the more you invest into them, 
the deeper the feelings grow. And it's the same with marriage. When you commit to a relationship in spite of your feelings, deeper feelings grow. Number three, the third thing that happens is, is freedom. See, if you're in a relationship where you have to feel it, you're a slave to your feelings. You're, you're a puppet on a string. And, and where do feelings come from? Well, they come from a, psych, a, a, a physiology, you know, body chemistry, and you know, certain things set that off, and it's like you know, things from past events, and you know, when they did that, they, they remind you of certain people that you didn't like, and, and it's just like you know, all these things come into play. You know, circumstances. But if you don't want to be a puppet on a string, you've got to make a confession that the relationship is more important than my feelings. Come on. Uh, many people want covenant, but they settle for consumer. Are you ready for a challenging message? If it's not challenging already, turn, turn to your neighbor and say, hit me with it. Come on. <laughs> I, I, I just want to clarify. At the start, you asked for this, Okay. You asked for this, uh, you, know, it's a, you know, one thing at Equipage Church, we like to keep it real, because there, there, there's real issues in our lives that cause a lot of pain, and unless we find God's way of doing it, you know, we're in danger of just thinking it's normal. Okay, just a, a couple of light questions to start off with, you know, how many here plan on cheating on their spouse one day? You know, having a little bit on the side. You know, how, how many here uh, plan on getting married, you know, popping out a few kids and then getting a bitter, ugly divorce? Is that in your five-year, 10-year plan? I don't know. Uh, is it there? You know, interesting. You know, nobody plans on doing that stuff. But it happens all the time. If we read the st statistics, we don't plan on it, and it happens. Why is that? Well, there, there's a whole lot of answers, but, but one of them is that society does a horrible job at preparing people for marriage. In fact, I'd argue and say, in society, we do, society does a great job at preparing people for divorce. Uh, well, think about that. Uh, what is dating... What dating has become is a really good preparation in a lot of ways for divorce. It used to be that, that things were reserved for marriage. Now, now the difference between dating and marriage is just a little ceremony that doesn't mean a whole lot to a whole lot of people. Because when they're dating, people are now doing what married people do. You know, they're saying things like, I, I love you, I give you my heart. You know, they're doing physical things, they're sharing bodies, staying the night in the same bed, sharing the same sink with the toothbrushes there, and they're, they're living together. You know, what people are doing is they play house, they pretend to be married, they do married things, but when it doesn't work out, what they do is they take their toothbrush and their broken heart, and they practice divorce. And, and then after we've done that with two or three people or eight people, it's no wonder that only, the only little thing that is different is a ceremony and a piece of paper that, that that whole marriage covenant doesn't mean much anymore. Uh, why is it when things get tough, people grab their toothbrush and what's left of their heart and they move on? 
See, society has trained us well in a lot of ways for divorce. And, and, and you know, God hates divorce, not because he hates divorce, but I believe God hates divorce simply because he hates the fallout, the pain, the hurts, uh, the cost to people as a result of broken relationships. You know, I'm not here to condemn people here. I know a lot of people have gone through a divorce and you know how painful it is. But, uh, but I want to say that God still has a plan for our relational futures. And just because it didn't work out over here, hey, there's building blocks that you can build into your life that are gonna help you in your future relationships. See, many of you will be married one day or you're married right now. And how many know you're gonna face some bumps along the road? The danger is the normal logic is when it gets hard, you take your toothbrush and you go somewhere else. It's just hard. Well, what I want to do today is I want to look at a story that's very painful in the Bible, but also very beautiful at the same time. And it really shows us the unfailing, the prevailing love of God. We're going to look at a couple by the name of Hosea and Goma. Hosea and Goma. Uh, Hosea is the man and Goma is the woman. What a little bit of an unfortunate name. I mean, no, there's some crazy names in the Bible. Samuel wasn't one of them, but, uh, you know, Goma, Goma, you know, if you haven't a child, don't call them Goma. Okay, but, but what we're going to see is a marriage that, that has every reason to end in divorce. But what we're going to see is God doing a miracle. Uh, let, let me give you a context. This happened 760 years before the birth of Christ. Jeroboam was the second king of the northern part of Israel. And and they were enjoying a time of unprecedented prosperity. But sadly, whenever there's an economic increase, there's always almost a a moral and spiritual decrease. And that's what we're seeing here. And, And what God does is God raises up a prophet, his name is Hosea, to speak into the spiritual adultery and the vile sins that the Israelites are committing. And so Hosea's man, and if we pick it up from Hosea chapter one, verse two, it says, the Lord began to speak through Hosea and the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Goma, daughter of the plain. The plain, yeah. <laughs> The plane, the plane. (laughs) And she conceived and bore him a son. Now, now God asked him to do something insane in my mind. He's asking him to marry a promiscuous woman, which is translated as a harlot or a prostitute. You know, God tells him to go marry this very immoral woman. Why? Why would God do that? He, He says, because the land... The Israelites are guilty of adultery by departing from God. So, so, so he marries Goma, the daughter of the plain, fresh off the plain. <laughs> and, and what happens is she conceives and, and bears him a son. Now, why would God tell this budding young prophet to go marry a prostitute? Uh, you know, this story is out there. It's crazy. 
It has layers upon layers. There's a literal story between Hosea and Morogoma. Then you have another story going on there, which is another layer, which is the picture of God, just like Hosea is, a, is, is loving this immoral woman. God is loving the immoral people of Israel. And, and then there's another layer on that where God is loving us as we continue to reject and sin against Him. So in the story, there's layers upon layers. But, but here we see this very disturbing but beautiful marriage. Uh, let me do this so it's a little bit easy to understand. I want to put this marriage in a modern day context. If they're living today, it would be something like this. You have this girl who has a pretty bad past. She meets a young man who's walked with God all of his life, who's sought to honor God. And God tells this guy to marry this girl. And he's probably thinking, if God told me to do this, it's going to work out all right. She's probably thinking, well, he's nice. He's not just looking for one thing. He's got a good job. He knows where he's going. Finally, I've found a decent man who I can trust. So, so what happens is these two get together. They get married. They have hopes and dreams that they set out and quickly she gets pregnant. And they get really excited because the baby's coming as, as couples do. And, and you know, they're both together at every scan. Is it a boy or is it a girl? They go through names. And we, no, we can't name him that because that's my past boyfriend. And it's like they're going through a whole lot of names. And, and she's had a lot of boyfriends. And, and so they're going, well, what are we going to name him? What are we going to name him? They do baby showers. They paint the room. Then one day the baby's born and she looks down and, and he's beautiful. He, he's beautiful. And they're happy and they're dreaming of this great future together. Then what happens? Life happens. Much in the same way it happens to you and I. His work picks up, spending more time at the office. She, she's resentful because he's not really helping with the baby any longer. He neglected that. She's upset. He's not helping around the house. You know, she's just had a baby. She's letting herself go a little bit. Her body's not what it used to be. You know, he's just had a kid. Her emotions are a little bit fragile. You know, not, not, not very friendly. He's feeling trapped and neglected. She's not paying, paying much attention to his needs. They're not doing well. Then one day, something happens. The old boyfriend talks to her on Facebook. She starts going back to the gym and trying to get back in shape. And there's a cute trainer, pays attention to her. You know, she takes a part-time job because the finances are tight. And there's a guy who's really nice. And then they've got this guy next door and something happens. The woman believes the most common marriage misconception that there is. She buys into the lie and she believes that what I'm missing is better than what I have. That what I'm missing is better than what I have. I have a pretty good guy, but, but he's not bringing me everything I want. And the things that I don't have are more important than what he's bringing to me. So what does she do? Hosea chapter two, verse five, she said, I will go after my lovers who will give me food and my water, my wool and my linen and my olive oil and my drink. Uh, they'll give me some things he doesn't. They'll give me food. They'll give me all this stuff. 
And, and although this other guy, he offers me so much, there's a few things he doesn't offer me, so I'm gonna look to somebody else. And she does what people have been doing for centuries. She, she trades the 80 for the 20. Uh, one of the most common foolish trades around. You, know, you, you may say, well, what in the world are you talking about? Uh, well, in a great marriage, your, couple, uh, your partner's only ever gonna provide for 80% of your needs and expectations. Nobody, hear me right now, nobody is gonna meet 100% of your needs. You wanna set somebody up for failure? Pretend like they can. Meet all your needs and expectations. No one can. This guy is delivering on about 80%, but there's 20% he's incapable of delivering on. And so she doesn't have the 20%, and she takes the 80% she has, and she trades it in for the 20%, and ends up with far less than what she had in the first place. I I don't know what the 20% these other people offered, but, you know, it became alluring, maybe because, you know, even the guy, he was a little bit distracted. You know, this other guy, you know, he listened to her, he complimented her, he bought her little gifts, told her she's special. You know, even said, you know, I, you know, I work hard and get a better income so I can provide for your needs. But still there was something missing. In a man's world, it could go a little bit like this. There's, there's another woman at work and she thinks I'm pretty cool. She doesn't put me down all the time. She even laughs at my jokes. You know, she, she enjoys watching sport with me and we have these things in common. She's, she's more exciting than my wife. And what they do is they, they trade the 80 for the 20 and they end up with less than what they had in the first place. They, they believe the lie. What I'm missing is better than what I have. That's a lie. Now, now hear me, there's real pain around this and, and, and some of you are real quiet because you know, you know, this is truth. You know, in fact, psychologists would say, you know, the biggest question that needs to be answered in a marriage is, did I marry the right person? And psychologists would say, that question left unanswered, that question meditated upon will lead to adultery. You need, and everybody, you know, when, when they're looking for the 20 and it's not being by their partner, you know, it's like, well, did I marry the right person? Yes, you made a promise. See, we always can think the grass is greener somewhere else. But next time you think the grass is greener somewhere else, it's time. That just means it's time to water your own garden. That means it's time to water your own garden. If it looks better somewhere else, it's only because you can... You can't smell the poop in the other yard. You're not close enough. If you get close enough, you'll smell the poop over there as well. What you're missing is not better than what you have. If you're just invest in what you have. See, what is more common than years of faithfulness? You know, there's a richness knowing that you work things through. Yeah, what you're missing isn't better than what you have. 
This is what Goma did. She went out, she met a couple of other guys, she got pregnant to these other guys. She broke her marriage vows and she had, she had a daughter named Lo Rama, which simply means unpitied or unloved or, or not loved by the true father. These names just reveal the revealing of the hurt that God felt in this. Then she went out and she met another guy and she had a son with him and she named him Lo Amai, which means, means no kin of mine or not related to me. See, you can, you can start to hear how her God is. And how her God is when people are just rejecting them time and time again. Come on, if you've ever been cheated on, you know the pain. And, and in the book, you know, as, as, as God's just revealing the pain that, that comes into play when people don't understand this thing of covenant. And God felt like his people were committing spiritual adultery. See, if you read through this book, it's really painful to watch God hurt. And this is what he, he does. He hurts. I, I could try and spin it and make like he doesn't and it, and it doesn't hurt, but it is what it is. And, 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 and God, if you read it, he is, a, he is a fit. He's angry. He's hurt. He's jealous. And he has every right to be. Because he's God. And he wants all of our hearts. Now, now I just want to divert for a little bit from relationships and look at God's heart for a minute because we need to look at his two responses to spiritual adultery. There's some of you here right now, here today, you're cheating on God. And this is how your disobedience makes him feel. He uses this metaphor to describe how he feels about it. Uh, the first response is God has a real righteous anger. Now, now, there's a difference between unrighteous anger and righteous anger. There's such a thing as righteous anger. Let's pick it up from verse 8 in chapter 2. It says, she has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her grain, the new wine and the oil, who lavished her with silver and gold which they use for Baal. Therefore, he says, I'll take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it's ready. I'll take back my will, my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I'll expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will ever, no one will take her out of my hand. You can hear the hurt there. Yeah, you can hear the jealousy because God has already made it known. He's a jealous God. And you can have no other gods before me, no other idols. And God's saying, man, I have every right to ask that you put me first. You see, he knows how good he is and how foolish we are for rejecting him. And, and it hurts him, it angers him. It's like, you want to live life without me? Let's see how it goes. Yeah, you want to live life without me? Just go ahead. See how it turns out for you. I think God may be saying some, for some of us today, you want to do marriage without me? Do it. See how it works out. Go put idols at the front of your life. Don't live for me. Don't pursue me. Do life without my word and my presence. 
Now, come on, that's how a lot of people live today, don't they? Then God says, and I like this because there's a, a sense of possessiveness. Here he says, ain't nobody going to steal her from me. Come on, I'd say if you found yourself betrayed and you get a bit angry, don't beat yourself up over it. There's a time for righteous anger. And also a sense of resolve. But you've got to have within you, I'm not going to let the devil steal from me what God's given me. I'm not going to let the devil steal, rip me off when it comes to my family. Come on, I'm going to fight for what is mine. Come on, is there anybody here who's prepared to fight for their relationships? Because sometimes it is that. We've got a world that's selling us all t- different types of things, but we've got to fight. And sadly, we live in a society that's trained us, if it's difficult, we do what we've done before and we just up and leave. Rather than fighting for their inheritance in God. But here's the deal. We're not going to go very far if we stay angry. Uh, When you read the story, there's a beautiful sudden shift. God's angry, then boom. First response is anger, but the second response is one of unfailing love. So there's a righteous anger, but then there's unfailing love. And here's the shift. Let's read it on from verse 14. Everybody awake. Come on, everybody alive right now. Come on, I want you to tune into this. Verse 14, it says, Therefore, now for, uh, therefore, <laughs> now for, <laughs> where'd that come from? Therefore, I am now <laughs> going to allure her. I'm going to allure her. I'll lead her into the wilderness and I'll speak tenderly to her. There I'll give her back her vineyards and I'll make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came out of Egypt. The valley of Achor. Achor simply means trouble. That's what it means. Achan, which is another guy in the Old Testament, means greedy and covetous. But Achor means, means trouble. And here it says, I'll make the valley of trouble a door of hope. Come on, I'll make the valley of trouble a door of hope. Come on, this year is a year of wide open doors. Come on, there's hope today. Do you know that there's two ways basically to have a good marriage? The first way is to do everything right. It works, I promise you. Just do everything right. The the second way to have a good marriage is to walk through the valley of Acor together until you find the door of hope. To do it together, to walk through the valley of trouble together until you discover the door of hope. Uh, What does that mean? You're not gonna do everything right. Come on, we sin, we mess up, we say cruel things, we're stubborn. Some of you are stubborn, even admitting you're stubborn. (laughs) Come Come on, we reject one another. But if you repent and you turn to God, you cry together, you hug, you apologize, you cry some more and you let God break some stuff off you, get rid of the rough edges. If you allow God to change you, you mess up, you may mess up again, you cry some more. But what you do is you walk through the valley of trouble 
And if you walk through the valley of trouble, on the other side is the door of hope. Some of the best marriages I know have walked through the valley of betrayal. They've walked through the valley of rejection, through the valley of pornography, deceit and adultery. They've walked through it together. It's been painful. It's been hard. It's been hurt. But, but as they've come to the other side, they've found a door of hope. Here's the deal. Some of you are married, but you're given up. And if the truth be known, you're, you're cohabitating, but you're no more than flatmates. Because you haven't, gone out through the, the valley of Acor and you lost hope. So you coexist. There's no way to live. God has something better for you. The challenge is sometimes, are they going to walk with you? In fact, I, I read this article many years ago. It was in stuff and it was talking about relationships and how they'd done a study and, and it talked about how many people see marriage as the, the capstone of their life. You know, it's like, hey, we finish school, we get a degree, we get our careers started, get that underway, we, we save up enough money, and then once we've done all that, we'll cap it off and we get married. And many people see it as, as, as like the capstone, you know, it's after I've done all this, then we cap it off. But it was talking about how, how marriage shouldn't be the capstone, it needs to be the cornerstone. Uh, the cornerstone is like you get married and how I many know there's always stuff to do. And marriage is, is, is like an adventure you go on. I'm, I'm glad we chose to get married as students. We had two years left in our study, but we didn't wait to the end of our studies. But we went on an adventure together and that adventure built strength into us. And that we're, Kathy and I say today, we're still on that adventure we're just believing for different things. And it talked about in the study that the marriages that go the distance, they see marriages that the cornerstone, not just the capstone. It's not just another tick. Well, I got my degree. Yeah, I got some house. And then I got married. You know, as somebody I live out this adventure with, and I walk through the Valley of Acor, and in there I'm finding places, doors of hope. You know, some of you right now, you're in the middle of the Valley of Acor, and you've lost hope. I'm here to tell you there's always hope with God. I told you right at the start, this is going to be a tough message. And it doesn't get any easier. Hold on. God, God is going to say the most amazing thing to this man who's been faithful and has been portrayed time and time again by this woman. If you fast forward in the story, what she's done is she's left him and he's shown his love to her over and over again. But she's prostituting herself, which I only can imagine how horrible that would be. And, and the text implies she's got a pimp, she's got a manager, she's caught in this world of slavery and prostitution. And God gives a very challenging, very profound message to the, the betrayed spouse. And here's what he says summarized. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to forgive and love as you have been forgiven and loved. In my mind, I'll go, stuff that. <laughs> you know, do you know what she did? Come on, how many are with me right there? 
But God t- tells Hosea, pick it up, chapter three, verse one, the Lord said, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and as an adulteress. Can we pause for a moment? How in the world is that possible? Because I'd struggle to find that in my emotions. It goes on and says, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love sacred raisin cakes. <laughs> I don't know what's up with raisin cakes, but hey, <laughs> it's in there. I didn't do a study on raisin cakes. Sorry, I can't expand on that. <laughs> She's a fruitcake? I don't know. Um, Love her as God is loving us right now. What's saying? Love her as God loves us while we're still in sin. Love her as Christ loved the church. Love her as God continually, unfailing, loves us consistently as we consistently reject Him. How do you love and forgive? In the same way that we've been loved and we've been forgiven. Here's the deal. There's no guarantees on what she's gonna do. Uh, There's no guarantee she's gonna come back because none of us can control the outcome. We can't control the other person's response, but we can determine our response and and our actions. Uh, What does this mean? Does this mean you become a doormat? No. Does this mean you put up with behavior that nobody should have to put up with? No. I wanna clarify, if your safety's threatened, or your kids in harm's way, and there's abuse going on, you need to remove yourself. And there's a difference between trust and forgiveness. Yeah, forgiveness is releasing somebody from your judgment, but trust, just because somebody's, you've forgiven them, doesn't mean you trust them straight away. And if there's any chance of reconciliation, you've got to put boundaries around it. And forgiveness and trust are different. It's not sorry and then walking back into the same situation, into the same circumstances and and then doing it again and again. It it just means no matter what the other person does, you're gonna choose what God says is right. Even though there's no guarantees. This is the hardest part of the story. Don't give up too early. Some go the extra mile and after that another mile. I'm not here, hear me, I'm not here to condemn you. Some of you can do the right thing, but you can't control the other person's actions. And you end up divorced. You you can't, you know, there's no condemnation in that. Because everybody has got to decide for themselves. And hear me, these topics bring up a whole lot of emotion and, and some of you will say, well, you know, it's easy for you to talk about this. You know, you don't have problems. Back the train up. <laughs> you know, life is hard. It, it throws at you different things. You know, you've got growing churches, churches around the world. You're managing a whole lot of things. You know, people's problems. Some of you aren't easy to, to pastor. I just want to say, <laughs> just getting you to church on time. Is a struggle week in and week out. You know, you know, I, I have problems, go to doctors, get, I've had diagnosed with two incurable diseases, you know, had to work through stuff. 
Everybody goes, oh, nobody knows what I'm going through. No, we all have our stuff. And we've got to work it through. But if you walk through the valley of Achor and you do it together, there's always a door of hope. And I've seen it you know, with other people. When they make that commitment, I've seen God do amazing works of restoration. Uh, let me just quickly, because time has gone, let me tell you the end of the story. God tells the prophet Hosea to go pursue his adulterous wife, to go show his love again, and this is what he does. He goes, he takes his own money, and he purchases her out of prostitution. He pays for his wife which is precisely what God did for you and I. While we were prostituting ourselves, while we were sinning, while we're, we're still in our sin, Christ died for us. He died for us, the ungodly. No, we didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. He shed His blood and He purchased us back so we could truly know His love. We don't actually know how the marriage ended. There's no record of what she did. My thought though is once he did that, how could she ever walk away from him again? He loved her enough to purchase her sin. The reason I feel that way is I look at what Christ did for me on the cross. I was deserving of death. And I've come to ask the same question. How could I not offer him my whole life? How, how could I walk away from him after what he's done for me? You know, I don't want to break his heart. See, what breaks his heart is when we continue to live in spiritual adultery. See, God wants not just part of us. You know, some of us here, we're dating with God, we're flirting with God. You know, we even treat God as a friend, but a friend with benefits. But we haven't come into covenant relationship even with God. And God, God wants all of us. Tough sermon, I know. But if we wanna experience the life God has on offer, it's not dipping your toe in and dipping your toe out. God says, hey, everything. If you want to find life, you've got to lose your life. You've got to give your life over to me. And if you give your life over to me, it's then you'll find life, you'll find freedom. It's not, you know, a little bit of pick and choose. You know, we go along, you know, at Hollywood Bakery and we take out of the counter what we want. Pick and choose. You know, growing up, you know, when Dad used to dish out the dinner, it was like, boom, that's on your plate. You eat what's on your plate. You know, well, I want to do it my way. I want that. No, it's like, no, this is what marriage is. It's rich, it's rewarding. To another level, it has been, but it's going to take you to lay down your rights. You have to come to a point where you say, the relationship is more important than my needs. But in the process of surrender is there you find what you need.